0: This is the Silver City Church Podcast. Our prayer is you are edified by this content and that it refines your life in Christ. Visit us at silvercityky.com. From there, you can connect with us on social media, view our location and service time, and download our mobile app to stay all the more connected with us. If this content has been beneficial to you, please share it and give the show a high rating so more may hear the gospel of Christ. May you see God's will be done and kingdom come in your life. All right. How many of you have ever heard a song that you really like? It gets stuck in your head. You can't get it out. It's one of those that you just, you hum along and you sing for weeks and weeks and weeks on end like Never had a friend like me from Aladdin, which Atlas has been singing for probably the past three months, every day, multiple times a day. Help us, Lord. Right? It becomes ingrained in you. You hear it over and over, and you think about it, and then it takes on this this meaning in your life, where maybe it just connects with you in a way, and you just like it. Then, by happenstance, back in the day, there used to be this channel on TV, it was called, it was cable, guy, kiddos, the thing on cable, it, it, you didn't stream anything, it's called VH1, and it was called Stories Behind the Songs, anybody remember VH1, man, we're getting really old, aren't we, and they tell the story in this, this, it's like a little biography documentary about the song, it tells the story about the song, how it came to be, and what it's really about, and you watch those, and you kind of get bummed out, you're like, really, that's what that song's about? That song's about a breakup. I thought it was about loving your mama. Oh man, I and then you just can't get it out of your head about how it changes your world. Wouldn't it be nice if like every song came with a little marker or back in the day the CD pamphlet thing, and you could read exactly what inspired that song and know so you didn't get your emotions all screwed up? That'd be nice. But today we have that privilege of actually knowing. What a psalm is about, the historical setting, what inspired it as we continue in our crash course listening to the concept album of the psalms. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 3, or the third psalm. Psalm 3, third psalm, there we go, all right? Psalm Three, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him and God. But you, O Lord, are my shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again. For the Lord sustained me, I would not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves around me. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all the enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Thus says the living word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have caused all of your word to be written for our learning. Give us the ability to understand it, to grasp it, to apply it to our lives, to live it out, looking to that word made flesh, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who died in our place that we may be reconciled back to you. God, we know your boy, Your word does not return to you void. Would it do great work, Would you have each heart here today, be good soil, and would we bear much fruit, keeping in repentance, fruit for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we come to Psalm 3, remember that Psalm 1 and 2 act as an introduction to the entire Psalter. Okay, we got some that have been out with sickness and crazy stuff going on. You're back. Good. I hope you've caught up on the app or on YouTube, wherever you listen, podcasts, whatever. No shameless plugs. Psalm 1 and 2, introduction for the entire Psalter. And this entire these uh, Psalm one and two teach us the big idea that all the psalms are aimed at in some way. What are they kind of all aimed at? The kingdom of God, which is what God's people in God's place under God's rule. I say that a lot. Remember that. So as we come to the various psalms that we're going to be studying, not going through all 150. We'll skip over a bunch of them this coming next week, all right? I'm not gonna tell you which one. We come to each of them, we need to keep that big idea in mind the meta theme, the overarching principle, the kingdom of God. And so, with it in mind, there needs to be some sobriety concerning the theme of the Psalter, the kingdom of God. If these are God inspired songs that we echo with our own voices and they're all about the kingdom of God, then What do we do with the ones that seem to be just David venting about something really bad or a psalmist lamenting something? How does that have anything to do with the kingdom of God? Well, everything, actually. God's people includes kings and singers, servants and kinsmen. And those people are in God's place, living under his rule, where he has put them, within the bounds he has given them. Maybe God's place is represented by recounting the land of Canaan, or Jerusalem, or the entire world, as we will see. And since God is the true king, and these songs are of his kingdom, then they are songs about his rule, and they're songs about his reign, and they're songs about his kingship. Songs about the king may sing about who the king is, maybe as a warrior or maybe as a savior. Songs about the king may sing about his kingdom and how he rules it and how the people listen to his rule through his word and see what the king does. Songs about the king will even sing about the people in relation to the king as sinners or as righteous ones saved by the benevolent ruler. So. Today, as we come to, t- to Psalm 3, we have this introductory psalm for book one, as it were. Within this psalm, not only do we have the big theme of the kingdom of God, but we have the smaller theme of confrontation that permeates throughout book one as well. And it's a confrontation of this the kingdom of God calling us to realize God is king, we are not, that he is in control, that he has a plan, we are sinners, and that even in his kingdom, We will face enemies. We are confronted with God's holiness, salvation, and our hoardedness and sin and need for redemption. O. Palmer Robertson says this, Indeed, the Psalms and their song resound the entire biblical story of salvation and redemption. The central themes of constant confrontation and ultimate victory reflect the unending struggle of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that characterizes all of redemptive history. And so it shall be seen today, heard today from Psalm chapter three, as we see the warring seed of David, son of Adam, rising against his father also in Absalom, the war and the seed of the serpent. And so today, let's go examine this psalm. Got your Bible open? Hope you do. If you need one, to see me after service, we'll get you one. You look in your Bible, you'll see Psalm 3 has what's known as a superscript that says it is a psalm of who? That you can listen, we're not the, the frozen chosen. I know it's cold in here. I'm keeping you awake. Speak. Who, who is the psalm? David, right, David. Right. This is the first Psalm in the Psalter that is attributed specifically to David, even though we have the internal testimony of Scripture in the New Testament telling us that David wrote Psalm 1 and 2. Nevertheless, the vast majority of the Psalms that are directly attributed to David occur within Book 1, which is 1 through 41. You could call, honestly, you could call Psalms 3 through 41 Book 1 proper, Right, you take Psalms 1 and 2, those are your intros, and then 3 through 41 are kind of like the real book 1, right? So book 1 proper, most of them are attributed to David. There are only two Psalms between 3 and 41 that aren't attributed to David. Whew, man, he wrote a lot of songs, a lot of chart toppers. David. So who was David? It was... The the second king of Israel, he was chosen by God to replace the first king, Saul, who did not follow God. David was the youngest of his brothers and primarily a worker of of the fields, a shepherd, but he was also a very skilled warrior. He was a skilled musician and, and poet, and he was a wise king, and he was also a wicked sinner. He was a liar. He was a cheater. He was a murderer. He was a traitor. Terrible. Just like you and me. God's story of redemption, of bringing his people back to the garden kingdom of Eden, where man and God dwell together unhindered, starts with Adam and Eve. Obviously, in the fall, when God promised them after the fall, that there would come one from the woman, a seed, a son, who would crush the head of the serpent, that chief enemy, Satan. And so throughout the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, God makes various covenants and and promises to his people that display how he will do this and what the Savior, the seed, will ultimately look like. He makes a covenant with Noah to not ever flood the world again in judgment. And that's usually where we stop, right? Unless, I highly encourage you all, if you've not been to the ark, go and go to the storybook Bible thing, the Noah storybook thing, because it paints a weird picture of what the story of Noah is actually about. It's not about happy animals. It's about judgment against sin. And it's not just God will not flood the world again. That's usually where we stop. No, he also says this, a realization that if a man spills the blood of another man, his blood or the blood of man will be required to pay the price of that other life. So in that covenant, God was already displaying the death of man through sin required the blood of man and that this Savior was going to be a great judge able to dish this out. Right? Why are we going through covenants? Because if we just come to David and go, well, yeah, we know who David is. Sling the stone and all that stuff. We we miss the connection to real space-time history that God worked in. So After Noah, God came to an old man named Abraham, promised him that he would give him so many descendants that would be more than grains of sand on the sea, and God promised to give Abraham a lineage. He's promising that a saving, uh, the coming Savior was going to be a promised son. Promised son. Then God came to a man named Moses and used Moses to save his people out of Egypt. Give them his rules, his law, his gracious law and how they were to live. The coming Savior was going to be just like Moses, but better. And then David. We come to David. God made a promise that there would be one who would sit on the throne of David forever, eternally, as king, as sovereign. You know what? David was completely aware that it wasn't just about a kingdom but that an earthly throne automatically infused and represented the heavenly throne of God. Each promise built on the previous promise to display more and more about the kingdom of God and who the true king, the true coming savior was. David just so happened by God's grace to be a part of this plan and was chosen by God himself to be king representing the true king, the savior, Jesus. And through David, that true king, Jesus, would come many generations later. We need not forget who David is. We who know our Bibles need not just gloss over and say, yep, he's the one that killed Goliath. Yep, he's the one that did all that stuff with Bathsheba. Yep, yep, yep. No, we need to remember who he is for all his greatness, but also for all his sins. Psalm of David. That man. Notice also in that superscript that this psalm has a historical setting. It has a historical setting. This psalm is inspired by the events of Second Samuel fifteen, thirteen through thirty-seven. You can read that later today. It's about when David's son Absalom decided to commit treason and split up the kingdom. Basically he usurped the throne. He he went after the hearts of Israel. He would stand at the gates and, and play this old game. Oh, what's your problem, friends? Oh, that's a really bad one. If I were king, I would listen to you and help you. And he had beautiful hair. He had beautiful locks of love, we're told, as well. They ended up being his downfall. Absalom stole the hearts of the men, it says. They followed him, and he usurped the throne. He wanted to be king. He wanted to kick his dad off. A faithful son hmm, and a wicked son. Hmm. A righteous path and a wicked path, Psalm 1. A raging king against the anointed king, Psalm 2. See how it goes together? Never forget the Psalms did not spring forth in a vacuum. We may not know what all the historical settings, the, the, the stories behind the songs, VH1 style, for every single one of them, but we know some of them, and this is one of them. So, Psalm 3. It's neatly broken into four parts or four strokes if you want to be a seminarian. Verses 1 and 2, 3 and 4, 5 and 6, and then guess what the last two are? See if y'all are awake. 7 and 8, great job, two of you. You get a gold star on your flannel graph after church. Psalm 3, verses 1 and 2 says this, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. Selah. Remember, each individual psalm is connected exegetically either to the psalms before it or after it or like those around it and things that are going on in and around it, okay? With these various themes. What did Psalm 2 focus on? What did Psalm 2 focus on? The wicked sinners of the earth, the enemies of the kingdom of God, raging against the Lord to no avail, right, against God and his anointed. So Psalm 3 opens with that same idea carrying forward from the heavenly throne to the earthly throne represented by David's kingdom, right? Oh, Yahweh, oh, true king, how many are my foes? How many are rising against me? You hear the connection there? God's people. God's people will always have enemies against them. We need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of that. But before we even get past the first verse of this psalm, we have Psalm 1 and 2 in mind. We will not despair. We're already, we already know where it's headed, don't we? We will confidently know the sovereign king breaks those enemies. He will defeat them. Indeed, he already has. And he defeats them with a mocking laugh. Ha! That's cute. It may be no laughing matter to us in the moment that we face opposition. Remember it's not a, a laughing care for you, it's a it's a mocking laugh. But we must at the end of the day rest ourselves in the reign of the king and trust he does exactly what he says he does and will do. And it may also be no laughing matter, no funny business, right? When you, dear Christian, this is no funny business. When you believe that he just reigns over you spiritually, Jesus is Lord over my heart, right? No, no. He reigns over things visible and invisible. He is Lord of all. He is Lord over the whole man, not just your feelings and your spirituality. He's over all, from Mars to Venus to Earth. To Zambia, to Uganda, God bless them, love those laws over there. And to us, the whole man, from the hair of your head to your gross toenails, he is Lord over all, not just your inside. Funny business of bad theology usually gets pushed forward also, of thinking that when we go to the scriptures, and we read about enemies. It's just spiritual enemies. And you hear this all the time on TBN and God TV, and even Caleb does this stuff too. It's just like, you've got that enemy that you've got to get rid of. That enemy of debt. That enemy of marriage problems. That enemy of not, you know, whatever. Like, personify all these situations. Beloved, I want to encourage you to think with with sobriety about something. Just as God reigns over all, visible and invisible, so too are the enemies of his people, visible and invisible. Church, you're going to have physical enemies, people, not merely sins that go on in our head. Oh, oh, God, all these enemies, many thousands of enemies rising before me. I lust and I lie. And I, yes, but you're going to have people who hate your guts. You are going to have people that hate you, not merely internal struggles. So do we trust the king? Do we trust Jesus with all of our life in his kingdom? Do we trust him to be just breaking spiritual enemies? Or do we trust him to actually break real enemies? Do we truncate the blessings of salvation of God to just the mere spiritual realm? Or is it both? It is. And we shall see this in the psalm. Beloved, you do not forget the historical circumstances of this psalm. Do not rush past this. David's own son has committed treason against him and even seeks to kill his own father, not spiritually, physically, for real. And yet, even in the midst of immense heartache, we have a parent Having a child turn on them, David still trusts the Lord. Many times in life, we will experience the greatest hurt, not from without, but from within our own closest circles. May the Lord spare us of that pain. And yet, if he does not, may he cause us to hold fast to him with the promise of Psalm 3. Notice in these first two verses, David laments three times that there are many, many, many enemies. David's overwhelmed. It's like at every single turn, there's somebody there who hates him. At every single turn, there's opposition. David's experience as king in the many, many, many foes, it's much like ours today, just slightly different. We're not kings of, of a country, No. But David often found foes that were in his own house or in his close group of advisors or his generals. And we too often find ourselves in season where it seems like every turn finds a foe coming out of the ground. You want to test this? Just if you have social media, open it up right now and behold the glorious month of June. If you don't, just go to your local store and behold, now the macaroni's gay. And that's what Yankee Doodle Dandy was actually about. So there you go. Call it macaroni. Take it to the bank. Look at it. Fact check it. Right? That's an enemy. That is an enemy. Social media and marketing. They hate your guts because you love the Lord. The initial verses with these many, 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 many enemies. What does it say? We do. do? Firstly, this. They rise up against David. They rise up against David. The word rising here is the same word used in Psalm 1, about the wicked not standing in judgment. And if you remember from Psalm 1, that word rising actually means come to fruition. So see, even Psalm 3 is connected to Psalm 1. Man, how amazing is that? Nobody else is hyped up as I am on the Psalms today. Right? Oh Lord, many foes... Many foes are rising against me. Many are coming to fruition. They're bearing the fruit of darkness. They're striving against me. This wasn't a perceived threat. These threats were for real. You know we so often in our limp wristed modern society like to play this little victim mentality trap game, right? Your microaggressions. right listen. Everybody in here except Lalo, and this is, you know what I'm about to say, everybody in here, according to society, is the scum of the earth because you're white. He said that from the point, yeah, because that's what they're telling you. They hate your guts, and they even hate Lalo too, because he's a man, a straight man with a family. Oh, gosh. Oh, you just triggered me. Oh, I'm so triggered that you can't even watch a Disney movie now without them having a label that says, this may cause disturbing triggers in you because it has people from Persia, Aladdin, I've had to watch it a lot. Really? And when somebody goes to church and doesn't go their way, they don't get on the committee that they want to be on. They don't sing the song. They don't pick the carpet out that they like, whatever. Then all of a sudden, They've got spiritual trauma. (gasps) Oh, they told me that I was bad. I've got spiritual trauma. Oh, goodness. Really? Yeah, that's real. not saying that people don't get abused in church. not saying that there aren't bad things that happen like that. But spiritual trauma is a minority case, not a majority. Here's the deal. Rarely do we actually face real threats in our lives from others. We can face threats to our livelihoods, though, if we stand against certain ideologies. can. Many of us, though, we need to realize this. We've got enemies outside, and we're also our worst enemy as well. But don't rise up and be an enemy against God yourself. Have the fruition of the Spirit, not of darkness. What do these enemies do against David as well? Secondly, they say nasty things. They run their mouth. They taunt. They jeer. If they had social media, it would be a smear campaign. He would be kicked off all the platforms, and the algorithm would just push hateful things about him. They just keep saying about him nasty things. Thirdly, they rise up against David. And their, culmin- their threats culminate in the ultimate belittling of David by saying, your God's not going to save you. Your God, is weak. he means nothing. He's not going to do anything for you. Remember that was his own son saying that to him. In vain on God are you relying. See, the enemy wants you to hear that taunt and take it swallow the whole thing, hook and bait. Consider your life right now, past experiences. We've all been there. We've all been there believing that the Lord is not worth trusting. Maybe you're there right now. Now, if it is you, or if you're there, or you're thinking about that time in your life, I've got a word for you. Selah. Selah. This, right, what is it? Selah. Not selah V, no. Selah. This word has much debate surrounding it because really, honestly, we have no idea what it means. It's here for the first time in Scripture at the end of verse two, and it's all over this altar. It's likely a musical notation. For, for years, there was this idea within scholastic circles that it meant like pause, that you pause and reflect about it, but that's kind of fallen out of favor more likely it's Selah is like a musical notation that means you repeat that last line and like build it louder. Like as you go into the next section and an indicator where possibly with that building louder that the priests would come in. The Lord is good. Steadfast love endures forever. Bam, right into the next verse, right? We do that here. Maybe that's what it means. We don't know. Whatever it is, Selah is calling us To hear the emphasis of the taunt of the enemy in anticipation for the next section. There is no salvation for you and God. Boom! And then we get ready with what? But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. That's something to build into. David recognizing the situation, doesn't give in to the many, many, many foes. He hears them. He knows what they're saying, but he doesn't give them an inch of ground. He says against these enemies, even against his own son, Yahweh, God, you are my shield. You are the lifter of my head. You are my answer. Notice at once that God is the antithesis to the actions and the words of the foes. He's David's shield, his direction of honor and reputation, and the lifter against the risers. David cries out, he summons, he pleads to the Lord over and against the enemies who are crying out against David and his God. And God answers David, proving to the enemies that he, God, does Respond, and if he responds, then there is indeed salvation, for he is near to all who call upon him. David is presenting God as a divine warrior, a shield that protects, as the one who is worth honoring to the one that is like the Calvary, the one that answers the Mayday call. See, often we have this anemic view of God where He's just all the time loving like some morphine-doped-up prune juice geriatric grandpa in the sky. But that's not the case. God is likened to a warrior frequently. Somebody on the battlefield slaughtering enemies. Someone fighting battles who kills and destroys. What's fascinating about this war language that that David brings forth here concerning God is, is the first description that he utilizes the first thing he says about God is he's a shield. You are my shield. This is a common metaphor in Scripture. We still understand what that is. What does a shield do? Protects you. Protects you. But why does David describe God initially like this? Why doesn't he describe God as a sword or an arrow or a spear? Go out there and get him, Lord. Why a shield? Well, of course, it's because God is the one who's going to protect. We get that. But it could it be that David's giving us something else too here. One thing that I encourage you to do when you study scripture, like a Berean, go into it daily, you come to these certain words, see how they're used in other places of scripture because the Bible interprets the Bible. That's the rule of faith. And one of the first places, the first place actually, that this word for shield in the original language is used is in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1 which says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. This vision of, of Abram comes on the heels of him defeating the kings of the valley of Sodom, where Abram met this really interesting guy named Melchizedek, the high priest of Salem, who Hebrews tells us was a type of Christ. He was pointing forward to Jesus. And in this vision, God is not saying, I'm going to protect you in battle, Abraham. He already did that. He had already done that. Last chapter, been there, rode the ride, got the t-shirt. God did protect me. No, what he is telling Abram in this is that God would protect his covenant promises that they would come about, that Abram could hide behind the sure word of the Lord. David is declaring the same about God here. Oh Lord, you are a shield, not only to protect me in battle, but for me to hide behind you as you bring your covenant promises to pass. You are true. You will not fail. It's all of you. That's his cry. This declaration of who God is, David says is a cry, a plea to Yahweh as he answers David. From where? Where does the Lord answer David from? His holy hill. Zion. Who sits enthroned on the holy hill? David. But who sits enthroned on the hill that we learned last week in Psalm 2? God. Ruling, reigning. David is declaring that God has answered him, has heard his plea, that he's not far away, that God was and is near. Dear listener, Listen to me, you need to hear this, the Selah, right? When you face foes, when you face difficulties, you go to God and ask him for wisdom and deliverance, but you go to God and worship with a heart full of faith, declaring what you know about him. It's not simply a, oh God, please deliver me. Yes, but what else? That he is your shield, that he is your deliverer, that he is the one who is in control of your whole life. Dear Christian can be assured of this. He will hear you. Not off in some distant hill, thousand billion trillion miles away. No. He's in your midst. He is in his temple. You, his temple, a living, breathing temple, a living, breathing, holy hill, as he rules in your heart. Trust that. And trust not only in God, what he will do and who he is, but physically who he is as David did. Verses 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Verse 5 has prompted some commentators to label this psalm a morning psalm. But this psalm has nothing to do with waking up with folders in your cup, I promise. The, the verse is David saying, there's a lot of trouble going on around me. God has allowed me to get good sleep. I was not all up, up, all night fretting and worrying. I'm entrusting this all to God, because good sleep keeps me sharp and focused on what's going on. Yeah, you, know, you want a little thread about how this connects to verse or, or to, to to Psalm chapter four, which we're not doing next week. Spoiler alert: Psalm, Psalm four eight says this in peace. What I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. See, they're strung together on the idea of rest. James Montgomery Boyce comments on this section perfectly. He says this, The confidence expressed in these verses is the confidence, the trust, of the next morning. The psalmist went to sleep trusting God. Now he is awakened with the events of the day, as was the case with the events the previous night. Firmly in God's hands, he is saying, I had a good night's rest, and now I'm not afraid to face the terrors of this new day. I will not fear the thousands drawn up against me. Beloved, is this you? Is this you right now? Do you face troubles day in and day out, but then face them in the night with fret and with worry? Do you realize David is presenting a twofold fact here? Firstly, sleep, rest, a good night's worth of Z's, is a gift from God, right? I'm going to say this again so you hear me. Do you understand that when you sleep good, that's not from your melatonin? Might be. Gift from God. Psalm 127 says that. Secondly, this gift comes in the gift wrapped package of what? Trusting in the Lord, that He will uphold you and control everything. You know, the King of Kings on a mountain, a holy hill, said the same thing in Matthew 6 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Get some good rest. Beloved, you need some good rest. At the end of the day, you may rest in your bed. You can physically wear yourself down mentally, though, as you lay there rolling around on the lines of battle over and over. And that's exactly what the enemy wants for you. The grand enemy, Satan, wants you to be tired. Doesn't he? Restless, not trusting, so foggy and stressed out that you can't function. Look to David as an example. Trust in the Lord. Pray that He would give you good, restorative rest every single night that you can call upon Him, being a realist, knowing that there's bad situations going on, but that you trust in Him with all that you are so that you wake up the next day refreshed physically and mentally and spiritually and emotionally, especially those of you that work weird shifts like third shift. You need that extra rest. Trusting in Him for a gift that He is a divine warrior that's going to keep you Going so that you can arise for his glory. And arise, you shall, just as he does. Verses 7 and 8. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David was able to go to the Lord, trusting in him physically and spiritually, even in the midst of a national treason conspiracy instigated by his son. Right? David is not demanding God do anything. Don't miss that. David is confident in what he says to the Lord. This is a battle cry of, Lord, I know you're able. Arise. Do this, please. When that word arises, is used in the Psalms. It always denotes like sure victory. It's not, well, you might. Arise O oh Lord. Yes, he's going to be victorious. And after this David follows with this great hosanna of the waving of the palm branches. Save me, O oh God. David transitions into what can be called an imprecatory part. What's imp- what's that? Sounds kind of sounds kind of mean at the end. All right? Listen, I know I know we're doing good family worship. That's good. Let's get refocused real quick because this is important. The last part of this has David saying a curse. Lord, would you break the teeth of all these enemies? Right. Uh, An imprecatory part of the psalm of the psalms is is actually a prayer of a curse or misfortune upon God's enemies. And we come to these as as, you know, use that word to get limp-wristed Christians a lot in modern society, and we go, oh gosh, why would David ever say that? We can't say that. That was all about back then. That doesn't have anything to do with us now. We get antsy. Isn't God love? Aren't we supposed to turn the other cheek? You know, the, that part of the psalm is just as inspired than the other verses that come before it, right? Do you want the enemies of God to win? Do you want them to win? No, of course not. Do you want to see sin destroyed? Yes, of course you do. Does that mean that you don't want sinners to repent? No, it's not a kill them all, Lord. No, it's Lord. If that was the case, we'd all be dead. It's it's God. Will they repent? But if they will not, would you bring justice? Would you be just? You have to remember David saying this in a historical circumstance that includes his own son. God, would he repent? But if not, will you crush him? And do you know what happened? The Lord did crush him. And David didn't go, well, that was great. He cried. He wept, Absalom, my son, Absalom, for days, wishing that he was still alive. It's not a capricious kill them all. It's Lord. Cause them to repent. And if not, will you bring justice? Will you crush them? Praying and singing the imprecatory Psalms, which we did, by the way, Psalm 11, super imprecatory. It's not guns blazing. It's Lord, I trust you with my emotions. I trust you with this situation. Smash them to pieces. Don't let them win. The calling of cursing against God's enemies is, is a prayer that, you would see his kingdom come and his will be done. And David calls for this crush by saying, God, strike the enemies on the cheek and break the teeth of the wicked. Those two verbs that strike and break, they've been used in the Old Testament before this, with the flood and with Pharaoh. Noah preached repentance. Moses called Pharaoh the same. And you see how that works. It still happening. But doesn't it sound familiar, striking the enemies on the cheek? Right, everybody, do this with me. Let's ready. Everybody, touch your cheek. What's behind those cheeks? Teeth. Break the teeth of who? Wicked. We've talked. You can stop touching your cheek. We've talked about the wicked in Psalms one and two, haven't we? This surely sounds like the king of kings with a rod of iron dashing his enemies to pieces like a clay pot. And what's more like clay on your body and your chompers? Right? Throughout the Psalms, David especially will liken enemies to lions or beasts. Beasts, take hold of you with their teeth and their jaws, and they eat you. But if that beast is toothless, then you, my friend, can laugh as the Lord laughs as they try to gum you to death. The enemy shall not prevail against the Lord. Indeed, that is how this psalm ends. Salvation, deliverance from enemies, from death itself belongs to the Lord. God is the one who saves. God is the one who brings his kingdom to pass. We cannot save ourselves. David knew that any victory, and he knew that any victory over physical enemies or sin or whatever was from the Lord. Notice how, how David ends this. Even though David had all these problems, he never lost sight with his fellow saints and of his fellow saints. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Yay, you saved me. Woohoo! no. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Yea, you've saved me. And your blessing of salvation be on your people. All your people. Deliver them all. We're not David. We're not ruling over a kingdom. What do we do with this? How do we sing this song? I want to give you three ways you can sing this song. Number one, Trust in the Lord. Beloved, no matter what you're facing, you must trust in the King of Kings. You may face physical foes who do not like you. Maybe they don't want to kill you, but they want to harm you. They push you aside at work. They belittle you on social media. Maybe they do actually threaten you. Trust in the Lord, not only for spiritual protection, but also physical. Trust in him. He is a shield. His covenant promises will come to pass. You cannot gain an inch of ground for the kingdom by worrying yourself six feet under. You cannot. Trust in Him. Second is this. Salvation belongs to the Lord. For salvation is Jesus. The word David uses for salvation here is is where we get the Hebrew name for Jesus. Even right here in this psalm, Jesus, salvation is jumping and being declared off the page. Dear friend, you cannot save yourself. You cannot save yourself by trying harder, trying to do what everybody else wants you to do, trying to accept what everybody wants you to accept. And you certainly cannot gain salvation by just going through the motions. You must repent of your sins, declare you're a traitor, that you're the Absalom to the true king and ask for mercy that he would have you in his kingdom. And guess what? He promises covenantally that He will. He will not crush you. He will be merciful. Being in the kingdom, being a Christian doesn't mean life changes magically overnight. It doesn't. It actually gets harder. It gets harder. But it's a strain that leads to life like childbirth. God may very well bless you, fix your physical problems. I've seen this happen even in my own life. He may crush some enemies, but... He may not and desire to give you wisdom on how to navigate life and how to wield the sword of the Spirit, walking in the way of the blessed man as he simply cultivates trust in you to trust in him. No matter what, we must remember that salvation belongs to the Lord. You can't force his hands. You can trust in it. The last way that you can sing this song. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Blessing. Salvation of the Lord results in God's blessing on his blessed people. Be the blessed man of Psalm 1 by not walking in the ways of the wicked. Be the blessed man of Psalm 1 by walking in the ways of the blessed kingdom of Psalm 2. Realize that the blessed life, the result of salvation, is not solely individualistic. David declared salvation belonged to the Lord. David declared personal trust in God. And yet David also realized he was connected to a community. Beloved, if the Lord has granted you salvation, be like the king who wrought it for you. Seek the blessing of others, salvation of others, the defense and the help of others, particularly your brothers and sisters Christ, your fellow kingdom. The Lord shields you, lifts you, delivers you from an enemy physical or spiritual, guess what? Tell somebody. Tell somebody. That's how we walk in community together. For it may be the means of grace that God uses to stoke that flame of trust in someone else. Beloved, hear me. Be not a foe of the Lord. He will crush you. He's already won. He's consummated His kingdom with a call to have enemies turned into friends. Come to him, trust him, repent, and know that salvation is of the Lord. And maybe you're in the belly of the well and you can say that with Jonah though. Salvation belongs to the Lord and live that salvation, that trust out with your fellow Christians. May His blessing of salvation be upon you in sleep, in physical need, in spiritual. And may we join in this song, Psalm 3, which is echoed before the throne for all eternity in Revelation 7 by every nation and tongue and tribe declaring salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, Lamb. The shield, the warrior, King, trust, be all glory and dominion and power forever. And all of God's people said, amen, glory and peace, grace and peace to be to you. Let's pray.